Welcome to My Morning Cup, a podcast produced by Costa Media Advisors and brought to you by the generous support of the Tennessee Valley Authority. To learn more about TVA's impact on our community, follow TVA on Instagram at TVA and on Twitter X at TVA News. My Morning Cup, where we have interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm Mike Costa, your host. Today, I have two special guests, Chip Baker and Roy Vaughn, who will be turning the tables and putting me on the hot seat. Chip, Roy, welcome to my morning cup. Before we get started with your all-out assault on me and my character, (laughs) let me ask, what's (laughs) in your morning cup? I thought we get to ask the questions. You do get to ask questions, but I get to start. Okay. What's in your morning cup, Michael? Well, generally, Chip. I have decaffeinated coffee, black, hot, black, decaffeinated coffee, about six cups. Chip needs decaf. Yes, he does. (laughs) But I'm not going to. (laughs) Thank God. I just gave him full calf Costa coffee there. So, uh, Mike, what led you to start my morning cup? What's the idea behind it? Seriously. My ego. Seriously. Seriously. (laughs) My ego. Absolutely. You know, people ask me that, and I tell them that. What started it was my ego. I needed something that uh, I could do that uh, kind of got me back into broadcasting. But the idea uh, for my morning cup came from uh, it's kind of twofold. The name is different than the purpose of it. The purpose of it was to talk to successful people about their career paths, how it's not a straight line. It's a lot of ups, downs, twists, turns. Uh, and it was kind of done with the intention of our kids in mind. My kids are 28 and almost 31, and they, they're big on social media, as most of that age group is, and all you see is success. I'm 32 years old, and I'm on top of the world, and it's not always true. And I wanted to just show that um, people who have successful careers have a lot of, a lot of ups and downs. They get hit a lot, but they get back up, and they— And there's further in the world they can climb. Much further, yeah. You're right. I think uh, you're an example of that. You left a pretty good gig and started your own business, and you're being very successful with it. So there's always another mountain to climb. Well, I remember great advice I got, do something you're passionate about, and I'm passionate about what I do. And I think everyone, to one degree or another, over their careers, finds that. Yeah, very true. So you're 50-plus episodes in at this point, right? Yep. So what are some of the most interesting or surprising things you've learned from your guests? Uh, you know, I, I that, that's a good question because Madison and I talked about that last week a bit. Um, everyone's been interesting. Everyone's got an interesting story to tell. And I think the, the most surprise, not necessarily surprising, but I like to tell people that we talk to a lot of people whose names you know and, a lot, and some you don't know yet. And it's the ones you don't know yet that tend to be the most interesting. And probably uh, some advice that you gave me when I started this, Roy, um, because I, I did what anyone's going to do is the path of least resistance. You, you lean on your friends and you say, hey, you want to come do my podcast with me? Well, most of my friends are old white guys. Who said, what's a podcast? Yes, <laughs> who said, what's a podcast? Yeah. Uh, but you said, look, before you have Chip on, me on, diversify it a little bit. Reach out to women, reach out to people of color. And that's what we've done. And, and I've found 
particularly the female entrepreneurs, to be the most interesting. Good. So listen, we're covering Morning Cup, but we're going to start diving into Mike Costa on some on some personal levels. So let me start out with one that is probably not one you think I would ask early on, but you are a New York Jets and New York Mets <laughs> fan, and how in the world did What's you up with that? come up with this affliction? I've always liked the underdog. <laughs> <laughs> I lived in New York from 1964 to 1970, and in 1969, the Mets won the series, and, Mets. and the Jets won the Super Bowl. And uh, from then on, I've been hoping they get back to some semblance of being a good team, and uh, 50 years in, and it ain't going to happen. <laughs> hey, Roy, you're not the I mean, old grass bill. I mean, the, jet, the Jets. He's also, old. <laughs> he is old. And you know what? The merchandise is always readily available and always on sale. All right. So we're going to stay in the fandom world. Okay. Uh, your blood is true orange. It is. How did it get that way for the University of Tennessee? All right. So I was born in Toledo, Ohio. And when I was two, I learned to put together a sentence that said, let's get the hell out of here. <laughs> but that, that You were a bright kid early. I, I right? was very bright. Certainly, certainly. But the fact that I was born in Ohio early on made me an Ohio State fan. Mm. Yeah, well, I, I understand that. I, I read Woody Hayes' book, The Hundred Yard War, and I liked, I liked the Buckeyes. And then, because I'm Catholic, I was a Notre Dame fan. So I was, I was rooting for Ohio State and Notre Dame. And it was when we moved to Memphis, you could still get the Era Parsegan show on public television. But the Johnny Majors show became... Actually, Bill Battle was the host when we first moved to Memphis. But when Johnny came marching home, that's when I became a Tennessee fan. It was really because of Conrad Holloway. That's how I became a Tennessee fan. And I think Conrad Holloway is absolutely not just the best athlete that's ever come through the University of Tennessee, but probably one of the best graduates that's ever come through the University of Tennessee. So you would consider Memphis home? Oh, yeah. That's where my brothers and sisters, majority of them live, five of them live. My parents made that home. I just, I left. I, I consider this home for me, but mm -hmm. for the family, yeah. Tell us about your family. What was it like growing up? You said there were seven of you? Yeah, it was lonely. <laughs> <laughs> There's a reason I have two kids. <laughs> uh, what do you want to know? What was it like growing up in a big family? You well, know? you grew up in a big family. You know what that's like. There's always something going on. You know, everyone plays a different role. The oldest plays their role. I was the middle child. I was the one that kind of got lost and wanted to get lost. I kind of went my own way on a lot of things. Uh, didn't necessarily go to every family event that was going on because I had other things happening. But it, it was great. And it's even better as you get older. As, as you get older, you really learn to appreciate a big family. So now when we have Thanksgiving, we have about 50 people. Oh. Yeah. So uh, I have six siblings. And um, of that, my parents had, I think, 14 or 16 grandchildren. I don't remember the exact number. Now we're in the greats. and. And all that. That strong leadership at the top. Oh, yeah. My dad was a first-generation American. His parents immigrated here from Sicily. His dad, he had a concrete business. In Philadelphia, he poured concrete porches. Very blue-collar. My mother was an only child whose dad died when she was 14, I think it was. Uh, so on my dad's side, uh, it was expected that, you know, you 
went to school and you went to work. And my dad went, was, uh, I don't know, he was getting ready to enter high school and he went to his dad and said, I'd really like to go to St. Joe's Prep, which is in Philadelphia. And his dad says, you can go to St. Joe's Prep, you pay for it. So he went to work, put himself through high school and put himself through college, uh, went to Drexel University, night school, and uh, met my mom on a blind date. Was he first generation college? Um, yeah, he was the first graduate in his family, yes. And my mother was a nurse, so she went wow. to nursing school, yeah. No strangers to hard work. No, not at all. They were a fun time. My dad was very uh, disciplined and work ethic, particularly as a little kid. You know, at the time, we were, I was one of six before my youngest sister was born. And my dad traveled a lot, so we would see him on he would leave Monday morning, come back Friday. So on the weekends, it was like, who's this strange man in our house? <laughs> <laughs> and then after we moved to Memphis, he was building a business and it became, he'd come home from work and it would be, don't bother your father until he's had his drink. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you, um, we've got to go there. Your dad offered an observation to you and maybe a bit of a challenge somewhere in your academic career, maybe post-graduation from UT and you were able to tell him you had achieved yeah. a career. I think, I think I know what you're getting. At. Yeah. Yeah. This is a family would you share, show. Would you sh it's a family show. So, so you should share it in that way. I think I frustrated my dad quite a bit, you know, because he by training was a mechanical engineer. So pretty analytical. I don't think I have an analytical bone in my body. I always enjoyed, uh, broadcasting. I was the kid that was calling the DJs and not for requests, just to kind of find out what the job was like and what they were doing, that kind of thing. And I watched a lot of television, believe it or not. And um, my dad would say to me, Mike, you'll never be a success sitting on your fat ass watching TV all day. <laughs> and that's, that's good advice because he was right. He was absolutely right. <laughs> so when, once I, uh, left the family business and eventually got into television. A couple of promotions later, I moved to Chattanooga and I get promoted to general manager and I'm in my office at Fox 61 WDSI. And I got this big office, obnoxiously big office, and I got five TVs sitting in front of me. So once a week I'd call them and I go, dad, guess what I'm doing? <laughs> sitting on my fat ass watching television <laughs> and getting paid <laughs> and getting paid. But you know, once I quit working for him, our relationship blossomed. Hmm. He really enjoyed what I chose to do, what I was doing. He was interested in it. He was supportive of it. And I couldn't have asked for a better relationship. That's great. Yeah. So how'd you get into broadcasting? You touched on that a bit. You were always fascinated with it. What, what was your journey through broadcasting? You know, the, the interesting thing, thinking back on it, I remember this pretty distinctly. Seventh grade, wanting to um, stand out in class and make the other kids laugh. So I forget what class it was. It was something we had to read, Yeah, probably literature of some type. I would always read everything in an announcer's voice, and it drove my teacher nuts. And that was seventh, eighth grade. And uh, so that, that kind of started it. And um, when I got to the University of Tennessee, I was a public relations journalism major. And one night, a good friend of mine and I, uh, Steve Sin, we had heard that the school radio station was taking applications for uh, DJs. And it, it was a non-paying position, but 
we wanted to do it. So we went and volunteered. And so I did two years at the school radio station. And when I graduated from the University of Tennessee, I thought, you know what? I really enjoyed that gig on the radio. But I got this public relations degree and uh, didn't know what to do with it. So I went home, worked for my dad selling forklifts. <laughs> did that for about two years. And uh, there was a reason I didn't like it because it, I, w- I was more of an intangible guy than selling a tangible product like that. And that's when I decided to get out of the family business. And when I went looking for jobs, I really thought I'd end up in an ad agency. And I ended up going to work for WHBQ Radio in Memphis, which at the time was a news talk station before Rush Limbaugh came along. It was all local news talk. And little known fact, WHBQ Radio was the first radio station in the world to play an Elvis Presley record. Wow. That's all right, Mama. Yeah. But I got a job at WHBQ Radio because I was out selling all day and listening to news talk radio. So I knew the format. So selling it was pretty easy for me. So I did that for a year and a half. Then an opportunity came up to get in television, went to WPTY in Memphis, stayed there 11 years. And uh, I was there. I got promoted a couple times, got passed over for a last promotion. And I came to the realization that to grow, I needed to leave. And uh, there was an opportunity here in Chattanooga at Fox 61. I was given that opportunity and uh, came over here as general sales manager. And within six months, became general manager. And the rest is history. So talk about Costa Media Advisors and, you know, 30 years in media experience. Yeah. And a lot of it in leadership positions. How does that translate to what you're trying to do with Costa Media Advisors? Well, I think the best thing I offer folks in terms of media advising is I know the other side of the desk. I know the negotiation on the other side of the desk. So with the companies I work with, I'm trying to show them the path to get the results that they want. And I know which doors to go to and and which paths to go. I started this not so much that I had a great idea or I had a passion to start a business. I started this because I want to be back in Chattanooga. I was in Montgomery, Alabama, and I realized that I love broadcasting, but I didn't like where I was doing it. And I, I just wanted to be back home. Well, so, um, if you don't mind talking about that, you've had plenty of opportunities to go to other markets, mm-hmm. but you stay focused on Chattanooga. Talk about why that is. Sure. Um, you know, through the career, I, I thought I would be here two years, three years, and leave. And the fact that I got here and uh, they didn't retain the general manager who hired me and then promoted me at Fox. And then in 2004, when Jerry Lingerfelt retired from News Channel 9, I had the opportunity to go over there, which was the number one station in the market. And the reality was I came to love Chattanooga. My girls were getting older. So we moved here and Reagan was, let's see, we moved here. Reagan was seven, maybe. And Peyton was five. And, you know, really, once they got to preteen and teen, I didn't really want to pull them up and move them out. And there was no reason to. Chattanooga was growing. I was getting involved in the community. That's the other great thing about Chattanooga. It allows you to get involved in the community. And the reality of running a TV station is if you can't get involved in the community when you're running a TV station, you're doing it wrong. I mean, because people are coming to your door asking you to get involved. Um so th- that was a big reason why, but I really liked my job. I really liked the stations I worked at. I really liked the people I worked with. 
we were sold a couple times and that changed some things. But that was it. I did have some opportunities had I pursued them, would have been pulling the family up and relocating them. And I just didn't think it was worth because I had the perfect gig here. That's so true. You know, I, I recall getting recruited to Houston and it was like, I really want to stay here. How do I stay here? But you talked about involvement. Mm-hmm. Talk about how you've been involved with Chattanooga. I'll tell you how it started. Um, I was at Fox 61 and we had a Sunday public service show, like every network does. And we didn't have a huge staff, so it was difficult to produce. It was always someone's burden to produce it. And uh, when I moved here, my dad said to me, he says, if you're going to a new town, because he did this a couple times. He said, if you're going to a new town, you got to spend your first two years saying yes, just doing whatever you can, doing things for people and organizations and doing things to where they get to know you, they get to know you're reliable, they get to know you're bringing something of value to the table. Great advice. Oh, it, it really was. And I took that to heart. And one of the things we had was this public service show that we really didn't have enough the staff in to produce it. So I came up with the bright idea of, well, why don't we want to produce it? Why don't we go to the Chamber of Commerce and offer them one half hour a month? So that takes care of one week. Then we'll go to the city and say, hey, city administration, why don't you have one? And then the county. And then the last one was we had just picked up the coaches show at UTC. So we went to Bill Stacy, who was president of UTC at that time, and gave it to UTC. And given each of them a half hour show filled our need, but it also really helped me get involved in the community. Tom Ed put me on the chamber board or recommended me for the chamber board. It was the Corker administration that time, and Claude Ramsey got to know them fairly well. But prior to that, they had no reason to come into our television station. And now we were getting them in the TV station once a month. That was pretty big. Absolutely. What a great idea. So you're, you're also involved in other things besides that, like YCAP. Tell us why YCAP. Why YCAP? Because I married Suzanne Prince Costa. That's why. She wanted to get involved. And so she reached out to them and said, I want to, get, I want to do something. What can I do? And they said, you know, we really need folks to feed these guys once a month, twice a month, whatever you want to do. And uh, she said, well, my husband loves to cook. Would that be all right? So we do. We, we're down to once a month and we'll, we'll do a meal. Uh, we try and cook most of them, but there are times we'll do some takeout. And tell us more about what YCAP does. So what YCAP is, it's the um, Youth Community Action Program that's part of the YMCA. Joe Smith started it here. His son, Andy, currently runs it. And really, they identify, I'd say, 10-year-old to 16-year-old young men who are having discipline issues or maybe had some legal law issues or, or brush with the law and they're recommended this program, and they go to the YCAP Center, which it's the old, I forget which firehouse it is, but it's an old firehouse on Central and Main, and uh, it's an after-school program. So they do their studies. They have Macaulay tutors come in and help them with their studies. Then they go do some sports. Uh, boxing's a big part of it because of uh, Joe's background and Andy's background. So it's a boxing program, but they also have a football team. They also um, baseball and whatever the sports are, but it keeps them uh, – off the streets, and what you find out with most of these kids, and they are, they're just little boys, is that um, this is the only place they really get to go be little boys at that time. When they go home, they tend to be the man of the house. And it just gives them an opportunity to be who they are. 
yeah, they've got some kids that have been through the program and gone on to some great things. What other organizations have you been involved with? Oh, geez. And how has it impacted your career? You know, the thing about Chattanooga, I, I, at least I think, is if you're not involved in organizations, you're hurting your career. So, you know, everything from the United Way to cheering a March of Dimes Gala to cheering Pink. But, you know, Rotary is one of my favorites. Was volunteering big when you grew up? Did your parents kind of model that for you? Yeah, absolutely. They were very involved with St. Jude, St. Jude Children's Hospital in Memphis. So um, both my dad and my mom had leadership positions uh, in St. Jude. And if you look at my brothers and sisters who are still in Memphis, uh, my whole family's very pro St. Jude. Matter of fact, little known fact, my middle name is Jude, patron saint of hopeless causes. Now imagine what that does for your psyche when your mom names you after the patron saint of hopeless causes. <laughs> well, we, we look at you as hopeful. Well, thank you. I've got great hope. Great, great hope, too. Let's switch gears a bit. What do you recall as some of your best leadership insights from all those experiences that You've had, you know, we talk about sometimes you get a career challenge or a life challenge. A lot of that's changed over the years. When I was younger, it was put your head down and pull forward. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they always say the best way for you to advance your career is to make your boss look good. And yes, there's a lot of truth to that, but there's so much more to it. I think the biggest thing is to understand that your success is directly dependent on the people who are working with you. And if you can help make them successful, you're going to be successful. And that includes uh, when someone comes to you and says, hey, um, I really love working with you, but I'm taking this opportunity. And there's a lot of people who get pretty ticked off, like, you're leaving me, you've done me. Man, if you can't be happy for someone advancing their career, because that's that, and, and kind of back to the broadcast business. A lot of people need to hear that advice. I think. Well, <laughs> and, and it's true. You know, uh, my news director, Tom Henderson at News Channel 9, we're the number 87 market. We were always going to be losing reporters and anchors because in TV, you're trying to advance your career to a larger market. And we very much saw our jobs as um, a training ground. You know, we were teaching them the basics. We were teaching them how to be journalists. We were teaching them the right things to do. And if they walked out of here with a good foundation, they could go anywhere. So tell me, from your standpoint, how have you thought about success? You know, it, it's kind of, a, it's changed a bunch from when I started. And now as I've gotten older, it's changed even more. You know, as you're a young person, you judge success on your title and your salary. And, and I, had a, I had a good model for success, you know, with my dad. You know, he built a pretty darn good business that my brothers still run today. You know, so there's that legacy. But what I've come to realize as I've gotten older is that the things you thought were important aren't important. It's really the relationships. It's really the positive effect you can have on people. It's not nearly the money factor. Yeah, yes, having money is important. Paying your bills is important. But at the end of the day, it's really the relationships you've built and the impact you've had on the community. Well, let me ask a question. So you've been through, you know, radio, you've been through TV, you're, you're now in your own business. Um, what would you say are a couple of the really major learning curve items that, you know, as you've gone through these, you know, you've worked for people, you've volunteered in the community. What, I mean, 
what what is it that has made you so successful? Wow. Um, I, I don't I don't necessarily look at it as what's made me successful, but more the lessons I've learned. Okay. Um, say the question again. Well, you, I mean, you've had you've had multiple aspects of your career: radio, TV, oh, volunteering. What, what, what the drive was? Yeah. The original drive was the fear of them one day bringing me in and saying. We know you don't know as much as you say you know, so we're going to let you go. <laughs> I mean, fear drove me very much. Early in my career, fear, fear, ambition and fear, and you get in positions that you don't think you're ready for, but you jump into them and you learn them. And, and all that's important, but you can get caught up in it. it. It doesn't mean anything. And the reality is, unless you're working for yourself, if you're working for a big company, you get hit by a bus today. They may wait until after the funeral to put out an ad, but they're going to put out an ad (laughs) and replace you. I think that is a common denominator though. We've talked about that several times. It's, is it fear of failure or drive for success? And the answer is yes. In equal parts. It's just, I mean, the three of us are at a point now where we have the luxury of saying that's not important to me anymore. That ambition, that, that that fear of failure, those things aren't important, but they are important. And, and I, I can understand how, like, if my daughters are listening to this, they think, oh, you just don't get it because they feel pressure. Yeah, I think anyone in their 20s, 30s feel pressure to succeed. And you get frustrated when you're not. So if you met someone on the street mm-hmm. and you, you try to describe Chattanooga, how would you define Chattanooga today? I always say it's a very open city. If you're willing to work in terms of getting involved in the community, they're glad to have you. You could do things in this city in terms of involvement, or let me rephrase it. I could do things in the city in terms of involvement that I couldn't do in Memphis, that you can't do in an Atlanta or a Nashville at the level that we do them. There's other cities that, that you can, but for the most part, I've found this to be a city that says, if you're willing to roll up your sleeves, we're happy to have you. It's an added benefit that it's a beautiful place to live. We're centrally located. I'm 100 miles from the University of Tennessee where I still have season tickets. <laughs> <laughs> that's, and frankly, that's a factor. But the other factor is we're a couple hours from Nashville. We're a couple hours from Atlanta, and we don't have to put up with that traffic. But if I want to go see some major concert or, or some event or some show, it's easy to get to. I think I read somewhere where uh, we're like a 12-hour drive from 80% of the country's population. Yeah, that's why logistics are so big here. To talk more about how you see my morning cup evolving. Um, there's a lot more people to talk to. And it's not just, as I said, names you know. Uh, the, the great stories are names you don't necessarily know yet. And uh, there's a lot more people in town to talk to. There's a wealth of folks that I know in Memphis to talk to. The fact that we have TVA as a partner now will open up some doors for us. Uh, and, and I'm going on the premise that everyone's got an interesting story. And the reality is everyone does. You know, they don't get to tell it a lot. And one of the reasons I started this was I missed those conversations I used to have as a general manager with other business leaders in town. And this enables me to do that. I, I would do this full time if I could. Well, you're really good at it. And, well, I, and I'll you. tell you this. Um, I will listen to somebody go, who, who is this? You know, I, just when you think you know everybody and you go like, wow, this is a really interesting story. And then I always come away with a nugget or two of, 
wow, I never thought about it like that. Yeah. Or that is so interesting. And what's funny is my son, Skylar, and I, he listens to your podcast. He's listened all to everyone. Everyone. And, you know, we'll talk about, you know, what do you think about that? And it's just, it's just such a great resource for our community, for people that really maybe you don't know about, but you, when you do, you go, that's amazing. Well, every Monday I get two phone calls. I get a phone call from my little brother, or not a phone call, I get an email from my little brother. After he listens, he always emails me and says what he thinks. And I usually get a phone call in the afternoon from our good friend, Chip Baker. Hey, I just finished listening to so-and-so, and fortunately, he usually says he likes it. <laughs> but to your point of people you don't know, I really enjoy the one we put out for Christmas, which was uh, Father Dale Hall, who is the chaplain of the streets. He uh, ministers to the homeless, and uh, just a fascinating guy of how you get started in that, just the dedication it takes to, to as he laughs about Take a vow of poverty because it's not that hard. <laughs> well, you know, I just listened to that, and he went back to get his education at 46. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. I mean, I think as a person, you're a constant learner or you, or you die, in my opinion. So, you know, for him to go back and get, you know, a whole different education at 46 is amazing. Yeah. Says someone who has a training company. Yeah, exactly. Right? You know, it's a, you know, you just a coincidence. I think not. Have we talked about Crestcom? <laughs> not enough. <laughs> no, no. Clearly not Clearly enough. Clearly not enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Mike, uh, what's, a, what's a hidden talent? A hidden talent? A hidden talent. I can tell you a little-known fact before I can tell okay, you a hidden Okay, all right. little-known fact is fine. little-known fact used to be my icebreaker when I, when I do training. Uh, little known fact is, uh, I have been in my career, the Kool-Aid man and Mr. Piggly Wiggly. Wow. Yeah. That's. And those took talent. I'm sure they <laughs> did. Um, and particularly the, the pig. The Kool-Aid man suit was more fun to wear cause it had a fan in it. <laughs> Mr. Pig, you smelled like a pig. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, okay. Now let's go back to hidden talent. Yeah. Apparently playing characters, uh, well-known uh, characters is, is a hidden talent. Yeah. Is, <laughs> God, I don't know. I don't know if I have any talent. I, I mean, I do enjoy cooking because I started in the restaurant business. Did you? Yeah, well, talk about school. that. I, yeah. I did not realize that. Yeah, yeah. In high school, I, I uh, started in the restaurant business. Steak and Ale was opening a new restaurant in Memphis, and they came to our high school looking for ambitious folks to man the Steak and Ale. And the reality was, was they – they were looking for softball players to win the softball league. So the interview question was, well, what kind of hitter are you? <laughs> but uh, that, And you that, still got the job. It still got the job. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, the little known fact on in hitting was in, I quit playing baseball in the seventh or eighth grade when my batting average was 0.00, <laughs> which is virtually impossible to do. Well, it's hard to swing at the ball when you're sitting on the bench. Well, I was a catcher. Uh -huh. and, and I had a very unique way of catching. I would wait till the ball quit rolling, go to the backstop, pick it up, and throw it back to the pitcher. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my little own talent is to divert the conversation to something I don't want to talk about. <laughs> you know, but, he, you know, he's talking about cooking. So we were, we were in Budapest, Hungary about uh, six, seven, eight years ago, and, and we went on a tour of a torture chamber. I didn't go with you on you that. You didn't go because you went to a cooking class. That's true. We cooked chicken paprika or paprika. 
And it was very good. He didn't bring us any. No, no, we had to eat it there. But I, I do enjoy cooking. That is way, that's how I relax. I've got one question. Would you ever spend a few days on a boat with Chet Baker again? Of course. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a lot of things you should do once in your lifetime. And the Vol Navy is one of those things that you've got to do once in your lifetime. And I had the pleasure of doing the Vol Navy to the Alabama game. I forget what year. The game was. was not the pleasure. No. The, not. Well, and, and we were on uh, Chip Baker's, what was it, 32-foot cubby cutter or whatever it was? Yeah. It cubby was, cadet. It, I, it I think slept, it was a lawnmower. It us. And uh, Roy was on that trip, and Jay Kenimer was on that trip, and it was uh, it was like camping on water. It was memorable. It yeah. was It was memorable. It was so memorable that when we got to Knoxville, Jay looked at us and said, See ya. I'm going to go get a hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> no, the memorable part was when we finished and got back after a four-day journey, he said, okay, guys, see you in six weeks. <laughs> well, that's not exactly what and, I said. And, and, then, and then Chip <laughs> forgot and said, let's, uh, let's meet next week. And yeah. your reply was, has it been, been six, six weeks? weeks? <laughs> but we did. Yes, we did. Uh, well, this has been great. Yeah. Are we to the last question? Or are you not going to ask the last question? Because no, before we, we ask the last question, I do want to remind everyone who makes all this possible. It's the Tennessee Valley Authority for sponsoring My Morning Cup. I thank them. Follow TVA on social media to learn more about its multifaceted mission of service and visit tva.com forward slash do good here to explore exciting career opportunities at TVA. So, Mike, let me ask you a question. You've had a wonderful career. It's been a wonderful life. It has. But looking back, what would you tell your 25-year-old self to have a happy and successful life? Oh, that's a great question. Where'd you come up with that? Just off the top of my head. Off the top of your head. I would say this. I would say learn empathy and learn gratitude. You know, learning empathy is, I think, very important because everyone's going through something that you have no idea what they're going through. And if you can have some empathy rather than just jumping down someone's throat, that's very important. Having gratitude is important because 99.9% .9 of the people I know would trade me my problems for theirs. And that's because we don't know enough about each other. The last thing I would tell you in terms of having a happy life and balancing that for your career, don't work for a jerk. I've worked for jerks. It's not worth the stress. Go find somewhere that makes you happy. Great advice. Hey Mike, thanks for my morning cup. Thanks for all you do for our community. Well, thank you. This has been fun. Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.